Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Australian Military History Podcast. Just a quick heads up before we kick off. I've decided to get all professional in this podcasting game and have invested in some flash podcasty type equipment. I'm about 90% sure I've got it all figured out and everything should be okay. But on the off chance that the audio quality isn't quite up to my usual low standards, I apologise and will endeavour to sort it out before the next episode. And while I'm in public service announcement mode, don't forget to check out our website, australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com, for maps and photos relevant to this episode, and check us out on Facegram and Instabook. And you can say g'day at amhp.media at gmail.com. Time to get into it. Now, I know I tend to abstain from the better-known events of our military history, which is why I haven't really mentioned the Dardanelles before now. But although most of us know about the landing and Lone Pine and maybe even the Neck, it's not widely known that Lone Pine and the Neck were just two parts of a much bigger push. So that's why I've chosen to do a few episodes on it. Three, to be exact. By August, the Gallipoli campaign had developed into a stalemate. The Turks accepted that, at least for now, the Anzacs were unlikely to be pushed out of their hard-won positions. Down south, the British had been battering away at Krithia for three months and had succeeded only in increasing their own casualties. The Turks were holding, and holding well. But for the Allies, contending themselves with their relatively small gains since April was never an option. Just sitting there, they were achieving nothing of any importance. They had to get moving so they could complete the task for which they had been sent in the first place, the seizure of Constantinople, knocking Turkey out of the war and opening up a passage through the Dardanelles to the Black Sea to link up with Russia. Something had to be done. They needed a breakout, and when General Birdwood presented a proposal for a small-scale attack at Anzac, the senior commanders saw an opportunity to turn that small operation into a full-scale offensive to deliver the long-forward breakout. Now, it's just occurred to me, that some of you may be tuning in from somewhere abroad and haven't been raised on the story of the Gallipoli campaign. So for those people, or indeed anyone who might not know just what was going on in the Dardanelles circa 1915, I'll provide a brief background before we dive too far into the August offensive. The Dardanelles campaign began as an attempt by the Royal Navy to force a passage through the Dardanelles Strait in March 1915. It was believed that the mighty British Navy would sail up the passage, lob off the coast of Constantinople, and the terrified Turks would throw in the towel and bow down to Anglo-Saxon supremacy. Thus, a warm-weather supply route would be opened up to Russia, and all things would be fine and dandy. But someone forgot to tell the Turks that their role in this whole thing was to be sufficiently terrified. In fact, they were far from it. As the British and a handful of French ships sailed into the strait, the unterrified Turks on the Gallipoli Peninsula started firing shells at the Allies. This had been thought through in the planning stages, and the battleships returned fire. But they were wily old campaigners, the Turks. Sure, some of the batteries received British fire, and quite a bit of damage was done. But just as many British shells fell on tubes, which occasionally spouted a bit of smoke. From the bridge of a ship, it looked like a gun being fired, and so return fire was directed at this ruse. And the Turks had the forethought to sow a few belts of mines across the strait. This too had been planned for. Minesweeping vessels were employed to sail before the battleships and clear the mines. But these vessels were manned by merchant seamen, not naval professionals. They were less than willing to bear the brunt of the Turkish guns, and so, early on in the piece, they said they wouldn't go out until the Turkish guns had been silenced. This took longer to achieve than had been planned, and de Robeck, the English admiral, 
ordered the French squadron to withdraw so he could send in more of his own ships. This is when disaster struck. You see, they knew about the mines which the Turks had put across the passage. What they didn't know about was the new line of mines which had been laid in the bay which the ships would use to make their turn. In the Admiral's words, The bavet was seen to be in distress. Large volumes of black smoke suddenly appeared on starboard quarterdeck and before any assistance could be rendered, she heeled over and sank in 36 fathoms north of Erinkui village in under three minutes. End quote. But it was not yet apparent that a mine was responsible for the loss of the bouvet. Shortly after 4pm, the HMS Inflexible lurched to starboard. Thinking they'd been torpedoed, they abandoned ship and were taken aboard the HMS Phaeton. Then, HMS Irresistible began to list to starboard as well. Her crew was taken off by a destroyer and she was left an easy target for the Turkish guns. HMS Ocean was ordered to go in and take Irresistible under tow, but Ocean said the water was too shallow, which apparently it wasn't. Ocean then sailed up and down, pounding the Turkish artillery until at 6.05pm she too struck a mine on the same line as the Bouvet Irresistible and Inflexible. Basically, the battle was over by this stage. Three battleships, Bouvet, Irresistible and Ocean, were on the bottom of the sea, three other ships had been crippled and 700 sailors had been killed. The problem was, the Navy couldn't break through until the mines had been cleared. They couldn't clear the mines while the Turkish guns were in place. The British and French battleships couldn't inflict sufficient damage on those guns from the sea. The Allies were left with two choices. One, abandon the whole endeavour, so not an option. Or two, land troops on the peninsula to take out those guns and allow the Navy free passage. Obviously, they took option two. And thus came the landings on the 25th of April. English troops, including men from India and other colonial possessions, landed on the south end of the peninsula at Cape Helles. The Australians and New Zealanders landed to the north at Garbatepe at what is now known as Anzac Cove. Both landings did not go well, and so, just like on the Western Front, both sides dug in for a war of attrition. The Turks tried to push the Anzacs back into the sea in May by launching a massive rolling wave attack, which did little except leave a pile of thousands of Turkish corpses in no man's land. Obviously, at some stage in this podcast series, I'll be covering the landing at Anzac and the Turkish counterattack in a bit more detail. By the 14th of May, the War Council in England was again faced with the question of whether to continue or abandon the operation. It was supposed to be a quick, simple operation, but here they were, thousands of troops sitting on a peninsula, twiddling their thumbs. Well, the commanders were twiddling, the troops were desperately trying to stay alive. But there were good reasons against abandoning the campaign. Several Balkan states were at that stage deciding whether to get involved in the war or not, and if so, which side to come in on. If they abandoned the expedition, Greece, Bulgaria and Romania could very likely join the Germans. And of course, there was British prestige to think of. They'd come blazing into the Eastern Theatre with arrogance to force a passage and come to Russia's aid. Now, they were actually calling on Russia for assistance. To turn back in defeat at the hands of what were considered to be people of an ailing empire was too much for most of the leaders back in London. It would have to be an exclusively British effort though, as the French refused to commit any more troops wishing to keep French troops to fight in France. But where to get these troops? And even if they were available, would they make any difference? Well, the answer to the first question was to find men from the New Army, those volunteers who had rushed to join at the urging of Lord Kitchener. 
Their training was near complete, and although it was intended that they should go to fight in France, maybe some could be diverted to Gallipoli to bring that thing to a conclusion, and then they could be brought back along with other British and Anzac forces. It was decided that the man on the spot, the man in charge, the very man who had failed to bring about a quick and simple win, should be asked what he thought. General Sir Ian Hamilton, to be fair, had been handed a lemon from the start. He had been given just six weeks' notice to gather, equip and transport the largest amphibious operation attempted up to that point. For context, the D-Day landing in June 1944 had been in the planning stages since early 1943. Hamilton was always behind the eight ball. With more time and more troops at the outset, he may have had a chance. Then when he launched attacks at Carithia down Cape Heller's way, he had more troops available than he did on the day of the landing. But now, that wasn't enough. But he was no quitter. He'd been given a job to do, and he was going to do it. Perhaps his greatest failing was that he never really gave an honest assessment to Kitchener. It was always something along the lines of, we've experienced some difficulties, but nothing we can't overcome. And so Kitchener had no real idea of what was going on. When the War Office decided to ask Hamilton what he thought he'd need, Hamilton had already laid out as much to Kitchener. Achibaba was a feature just inland from Cape Hellas, and from the coastal slopes it appeared to dominate the whole area. In fact, it dominated nothing. But Hamilton and his generals didn't know that, and so Hamilton had advised Kitchener that he felt that if Achibaba could be captured, the entire front would open up. He felt confident he could do it with the forces he had on hand. But, and it turned out to be a crucial but, if he could have two fresh divisions organised as a corps, he could push on, not only to Achibaba, but also Gabatepe, in front of the Anzacs. Kitchener decided to send Hamilton the 52nd Division and some artillery. But the following day, Kitchener received the War Officer's request to ask Hamilton what he needed. And so Kitchener asked Hamilton to confirm based on the assumption that he could have whatever he asked for, just how many troops he needed to bring the campaign to an end. Now, a man of lesser character would see this as a blank check and request a wildly inflated number, but not Sir Ian. He was a decent man, and he wouldn't ask for a single man more than he thought would be needed. Given that the assistance, which was to come from Russia, had to be cancelled due to a German invasion in Galicia, Hamilton gave careful consideration and requested two army corps, four divisions. And then nothing was heard for three weeks. During the three weeks, the Russians had suffered a heavy defeat and Hamilton urged for his requested troops to be dispatched post-haste. The reason for the delay was that England was in the process of changing government. Part of that change of government was the formation of the Dardanelles Committee. Kitchener had drafted a paper for the committee laying out three options. One, withdrawal. Two, provision of sufficient troops to force a breakout. Or three, maintaining the force and pushing forward at a later time. Kitchener wavered more towards the third option. Keep in mind, he still had a war to fight in France, and the diversion of four divisions, in addition to the regular reinforcement of troops already at the Dardanelles, would be a waste of men if it didn't result in a breakthrough. He cabled Hamilton, asking, Are you convinced that with the immediate reinforcements, to the extent you mentioned, you could force the Bar position and thus finish the Dardanelles operations? Well, what was Hamilton going to say to that? He couldn't say, not really, could he? Instead, he replied with, I believe the reinforcements asked for will eventually enable me to take Khalid Bahar and will assuredly expedite the decision. And so, with this reassurance, Kitchener pushed for the reinforcement and the War Cabinet agreed. The 52nd Division was already on its way 
and Kishner telegraphed Hamilton to advise him that another three divisions would be sent. He ended the telegram with the words, While steadfastly pressing the enemy, there seems no reason for running any premature risks in the meantime. Basically, he's saying, don't waste your current manpower on minor attacks which will achieve nothing. Wait until reinforcements arrive, and then attack with all available strength. And so, until that stage, a kind of comparative peace descended on the peninsula. I say comparative because each day still brought death and wounding to both sides, but it was just on a smaller scale, with no pitched battles being fought. Hamilton's original plan for this breakout assault was relatively simple, a push from the south to take Achibaba, while the Anzacs would push to the southeast and the two forces would meet on the Kilidbahir Plateau on the east coast below Modos. But in the delay, while waiting for the requested troops, Hamilton was presented a draft plan from General Birdwood, commander of the Anzacs. It was a bold plan, and it only involved a breakout from the Anzac beachhead. Birdwood, at that point, had no idea that Hamilton was planning a much bigger attack. Instead of Hamilton's plan of a southeasterly thrust by the Anzacs, Birdwood's plan had them pushing to the northeast to seize the heights of Surrey Bear, known as Hill 971 on the maps. It would involve a night attack and would make an asset of the difficult terrain, rather than trying to fight against it, as had been the case since the landing. It was also an area which didn't have a continuous enemy trench line which would need to be overcome. Hamilton liked the idea. Meanwhile, another of Hamilton's faults as a commander came to the fore. He was unable to impose his will on his more intemperate subordinates. Despite Kitchen's warning not to expend his troops in minor attacks, General Hunter Weston convinced Hamilton that an opportunity had presented itself to gain ground from the Turks by another frontal attack. Hamilton allowed himself to be convinced, and so on the 4th of June, French and British troops attacked from the south. The end result was 4,000 Allied casualties, and although some Turkish positions had been taken, the Turks were able to form a much stronger defensive position than that which had been attacked. Finally, Hamilton ordered that no more attempts to hammer away at the Turks from Cape Hellas would be tolerated. He wasn't going to send his new divisions into a useless fight from the south. Birdwood's plan began to take on even more significance. A breakout from the north was really the only option now available to Hamilton. From his perspective, this seemed the best option, to attack unexpectedly in an area not prepared for defence. Birdwood asked Hamilton, for an additional division, plus a brigade, to ensure that his limited goal would be carried through. He thought sometime in early July would be optimal, as the moon would be past full and the conditions should be advantageous. Hamilton was set to give approval, but then he was advised that his requested three divisions would be sent ASAP. In his mind, he now had the means to launch an offensive on a much grander scale than the one proposed by Birdwood. The possibility of success of his flagging campaign suddenly seemed within his reach. It would obviously need more time to pull together than the one proposed by Birdwood, and so late July, early August would be the time. He presented the proposal to his senior commanders and they accepted his scheme. Surprise was to be the key to success. Hamilton had sent a telegram to Kitchener advising of the basic details of his plan and Kitchener agreed that further attacks at Helles, where the Turks were prepared and waiting, would be a waste of manpower. Striking to the north would catch the Turks out but only if the preparations were kept as quiet as possible. Kishner was so supportive of the planned offensive that he offered Hamilton a further two divisions on top of the three already on their way. He felt that one of the failures at the landing was the lack of a reserve force. These two divisions would form Hamilton's reserve, and another division and some Indian troops 
were made available a few days before the fighting commenced. So all up, Hamilton had an extra seven divisions to blow this campaign wide open. But ammunition was going to be a problem, in particular artillery. The initial assault into the hills around Anzac in the darkness would only need a small bombardment, but when the heights were taken, a significant barrage would be needed to repel Turkish counterattacks. His seven new divisions would also need artillery assistance once their landing had been successfully completed. The obvious thing to be gained from this situation was the need to conserve artillery in the lead-up to the offensive. And so, of course, two further assaults were made down at Cape Hellas, each requiring strong artillery preparation. Some minor successes were achieved, but also achieved were about 5,000 more British and French casualties and the depletion of vital artillery reserves. Only 5,000 rounds were left at Cape Hellas after the attacks. Again, Hamilton had allowed himself to be talked into approving these attacks despite knowing the ammunition situation and Kitchener's orders to not waste lives in continued attacks against prepared positions. Why he approved it, nobody really knows. On the upside for the Allies, the Turks had suffered heavily from these attacks. The German general running the show for the Turks had a policy of strong counterattacks whenever ground was lost. The Turks never let him down, but the cost in manpower was immense. They had suffered 16,000 casualties during these June battles, and they were also expending artillery ammunition at a prodigious rate. So it could be argued that these attacks at Cape Hellas did provide some advantage in assisting Hamilton's planned offensive. With the casualties suffered at Hellas, Hamilton was unable to include those battered divisions in his attack, and so in the end he was left with the 1st Australian Division, the New Zealand and Australian Division, and the 10th, 11th and 13th British Divisions. The 53rd and 54th, the extra two divisions he had been promised, would arrive too late to take part in the opening stages of the battle. And so down to planning in detail. From what had been a simple proposal from Birdwood to advance onto Hill 971, now became a complicated battle to be fought on five fronts with 100,000 troops, many inexperienced new army soldiers. It was like a bark hut, which then had a lean-to attached to the side, and then a kitchen hobbled together on the opposite side, an outhouse down the back, and a bark humpy out the front, all joined together with a rough path made from kicking the leaves and twigs to show a bit of bare earth. And it was complicated, with one phase depending on another phase, which was dependent upon a success of another phase. As Les Carline put it in his brilliant book, Gallipoli, it was like an exotic bet on a series of horse races. If the first leg got up, the second leg was alive. If the third leg didn't get up, the whole bet was lost. End quote. And it was all thrown together in a matter of weeks. In the same way, the initial landing had been thrown together. Inevitably, rushed planning of a complicated battle led to misunderstandings and revisions of revisions. And even to this day, debate continues as to just what it was supposed to achieve. The British divisions would land to the north of Garba Tepe as the Anzac troops pushed towards the heights. But were the Anzac attacks a diversion to keep the Turks busy while the British landed, or was it a full-scale battle with the intention of joining up with the British units on the heights to then push across the peninsula together? No one was particularly sure at the time, and they still aren't. To understand what happened during the attack, it's important that I give an outline of how it was supposed to go. But it might get a bit confusing, so before going on, see if you can pop over to the website and have a look at the maps. It may help things to make more sense. Here goes. On 3rd of August, reinforcements would be landed at Anzac to support Burwood's part of the show. He and his New Zealand counterpart, General Godley, would handle things in this area. To create a diversion, British troops would attack in the afternoon of 6th of August, and then at 5.30pm, the Australians would attack at Lone Pine. Once darkness had settled over the peninsula, 
Godley's New Zealanders would make for Chinook Bear, but the route to Chinook Bear was too narrow for the entire Kiwi force to take, and so the right assaulting column would go up Sasley Deer and Chilak Deer. The left assaulting column would head along the coast, turn right and head up Argyle Deer, and then Hill 971 and Hill Q. While that was happening, the 11th Division would land at Suvla Bay to the north, push inland to take Kiritek Tepe, Chocolate Hill and the W Hills. The 10th Division would follow at dawn the next day, the 7th of August. By this stage, the New Zealanders would have captured Chinook Bear and would be attacking back down the hill towards Baby 700. While they were doing that, the Australians would be attacking uphill towards Baby 700 from the Neck, Pope's Corner and Quinn's Post. The Suvla troops would continue their advance along Kerech Tepe and take Tekatepe. By the end of the second day, the Allies would hold the line from Suvla Bay to the height of Chunuk Bear, Baby 700 and Battleship Hill. The Turks would be pushed out of Lone Pine and the way would be open for the advance on Midos and finally Turkey would be out of the war. So from that you can see what Les Carline was referring to with his exotic bet. If any one of those assaults fails, the rest is put into jeopardy. If more than one fails, well, we'll see what happens. So obviously, in command of such a vital part of the plan as the Suvla Bay landings, you would want to put in a man of vigour. A man of action, in his prime, and full of desire to hook in and beat some Turkish heads together. A quick thinker who can adapt and keep his men moving forward when they meet the inevitable snafus that accompany such endeavours. So who did Hamilton put in charge? General Sir Frederick Stopford. Good man, you might ask. Surely he must be if he was the chosen one. Well, no. He got the command for two reasons. One, he wasn't too tall, and two, he wasn't too fat. The British Army at this stage still held seniority above all else. It would be an insult to a man's honour to have a less senior officer appointed over him simply because they were better at the job. Hamilton had a choice of three candidates from the three divisions he was receiving. Major General Shaw of the 13th weighed in at 120 kilos. His fitness, or lack thereof, would be a major drawback. Major General Hammersley came with a warning that he may not be up to the strain, having suffered a nervous breakdown prior to the war. Lieutenant General Marne was one rank too high to be given a division. He should have been commanding a corps, but Hamilton didn't think he was up to it. So whoever commanded here would have to be senior to Marne to avoid insulting the bloke. That left General John Ewart or Stopford. Ewart was the obvious choice, except, according to Hamilton, in communication with Kitchener, I greatly admire Ewart's character, but he positively could not have made his way along the fire trenches I inspected yesterday. Would not Stopford be preferable to Ewart? End quote. So because of seniority and the fact that Ewart was a big unit, Stopford was given command. But who was he? Well, he was 61 years of age when he sailed for Gallipoli. Back in 1895, as a young man, he was seen as an officer to watch. But now, in 1914, that fire had long since burned out. He could put on a crack and parade in his day and was a fixture at the officer's mess, but of war he was an infant. He retired from the army in 1909, having never commanded troops in battle. We will see where this leads. But Carline says of Stopford that in an article for Who's Who, a magazine for the British social classes, Stopford stated that he'd had a pretty good innings. Carline then questions whether Stopford knew why he was even sent in to bat. It will turn out to be a pretty good description. All is now in place. Reinforcements are coming. Senior commanders, for what they are worth in Stopford's case, are aware of their basic tasks. The plan has been drawn up and now all that remains is to set it all in motion and bring this Dardanelles sideshow to a successful conclusion. 
How's it all going to turn out? Well, my friends, you'll just have to wait until the next episode to find out just how much of a balls up the whole thing turned out to be. Catch you then.